We're in First Peter. We're just getting started. Um, and I, I don't think I'll go through all the introductory stuff. We've done that now for a couple of weeks. But uh, if you're following in your uh, note packet, we're on page four. And we're still, we're still in the early verses of, the, of the, the, the book. And I suspect this is the way it'll, it'll go in many ways, because the book of First Peter, almost every verse, it, it's just filled with very important terms, and, and it's very theological. And I want to try to do justice to the Word of God, even in a, in a, a verse-by-verse study like this. So, unfortunately, and that's the way it is, you kind of, every time we stop, we kind of stop in the middle of a verse or the middle of a thought, and it's always hard to bring that together again and get you all, and particularly because I know some of you in your business and work travel or you have meetings, so you can't be here every week. So I'll do my best to keep the context each time we get together. And uh, that context is a little hard now in, in the beginning of First Peter. But um, if you look, let me just kind of read several of the verses, starting with verse 3 into verse 5 and 6, which is kind of where I want to pick up. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. Uh, that's not a new term, new concept, new idea. It comes, of course, from the words of Jesus in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, to a living hope. So what I did here is I put on the board that term hope. And hope is a, I mean, typically is a future-oriented word. I mean, when you say hope, you're not generally thinking about something that's right now. You're looking about something into the future. And there's, there's, a, there's a certainty about that. There's an expectation about that. You know, you, you can say something like, I hope to get a million dollars. That's not hope. That's a wish. It's a baseless wish. <laughs> but to say, I, my hope is in the return of Christ, there's both certainty there. There's anticipation there. There should be excitement there. So Peter is connecting to be born again to what? The result is a living hope. And this is really, really important. You can see this particularly in the grammar of the original language. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what he's saying is you anchor your hope in a past certainty. Does that sentence make sense to you? You anchor your hope in a past certainty. Because of the resurrection, and I I mean, I've said this many times in, in our various classes, If the resurrection is an historic, demonstrable, proven fact, please stop coming to this class. I mean, don't come. Don't stop going to church. But if the resurrection is true and it's a demonstrable historical fact, that changes everything. That means the grave in Jerusalem is empty. That means that the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I will die, and in the third day I will be raised from the dead, what he said happened, and it's true. So Peter is saying the resurrection is the anchor of your hope. And he summarizes our hope in verse 4 with the word inheritance. Now, that's in America particularly. You know, we plan our estate, we write wills, and we sometimes set up trust. I mean, all that stuff all thinking of the future and how we're going to manage our resources, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what he's talking about. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We talked about those words last week. You you can't miss what he's saying there. Our inheritance is not like any inheritance you think of now. It's an inheritance, an inheritance rooted in the resurrection. That folk, that I'm, I'm using a word that is really the meaning of the word salvation there. Our glorification. Because you see, he says, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what you should do is connect the word inheritance with the word salvation in verse 5. 
So what does he mean? An inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's being kept by the Father. What is it? Glorification ready to be revealed in the last time. The word, the word for salvation here, which in context means glorification, is soterion. It has three different meanings in the New Testament. Soterion can mean our justification, where we're declared righteous the moment we put our faith in Christ. I, I went over this last week. I think I wrote it on the board. It can mean sanctification, that process of being saved from the power of sin, or it can mean glorification, which is that final act of redemption where our old body, our old has the old capacity and power to sin is replaced by a new resurrected glorified body. And that's what Jesus promised. And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That chapter is the longest chapter in the Bible defending that proposition. And so he says that is the imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance you're waiting for. That new, resurrected, glorified body where your, ache, your knees won't ache anymore. And you're, most of you aren't old enough for that to happen yet. But as you get old, I promise that'll happen. Your knees will start... I'm 70, so that's what I'm trying I left knees aching a little bit. I'm blind in my left eye. I've been blind since I was age five, a childhood accident. I mean, all of the things that are wrong with our bodies, let alone the power and habits of sin, will all be gone. Now, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this Bible study, but that's an exciting truth to wrap your arms around. And that's what Peter's saying. That's, in the context of what he's writing about, that's the content of our hope. That's the content of the imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. But it's all anchored by the resurrection. That's right. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical demonstrable fact, Woody, you also can believe that the same thing will happen to you. Amen. A resurrected, glorified body that will live forever. Because that's true. This promise is true. And that's the content, the content of our hope. Right? I mean, do you understand what he's doing? I'm trying to connect all of these, um, I don't know how else to put it, all of these wonderful words and terms that Peter is using to to basically three words. Hope, which is anchored in the historical, factual, demonstrable resurrection of Jesus, and the inheritance, as he's talking about, which is the glorification, our resurrected, glorified body. When will that happen? And he uses the phrase, the last time. The end time. And that's the favorite New Testament phrase, uh, that is used to refer to the return of Jesus. What he promised he would do in John chapter 14, that's, that's what he's talking about. Okay? So we kind of left with some of this hanging. I just ran out of time to get it all together. But I wanted to tie all this together in terms of what verse 4 and verse 5 is really uh, focusing on for us. And it, it's just a tremendous truth. I mean, that's something to get excited about. So, anyway, Fred. Jim, you're uh, referencing uh, the return, and that can be the rapture, and then that can be the return from the millennial kingdom on earth, right? And how are, which one are you referring to? Um, well, yeah, last time is a phrase that covers a whole sequence of events. But uh, my own conviction is that the first event, or from our perspective, the next event that we would be looking for would be the rapture of the church. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53. Those two are connected because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us what's going to happen at the rapture. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we are allowed to be caught up to be with him forever, etc. What's going to happen in that event? We get our new resurrected glorified bodies. So the specific point, because I think that's your question, that he's referring to here is the rapture. Wherever you're going to put it, and there's always a lot of discussion about that, that's the event he's talking about. Okay? So if I give you a quiz on this next week, you'll be able to connect these three, right? Yes. 
or if I ask you to write a thought paper on this, you'll be able to do that in a couple paragraphs. Fred, Fred could. Huh? Fred could. Well, then I would. No, I won't do that. But anyway, any, okay. Any questions, uh, Daryl? Yep. And it's not something we can see, which is what Paul is saying. But it is rooted, and that's why I love what Peter's doing here. It's rooted in that truth. Because that's true. You can trust that what God is promising you, he's he's going to fulfill that promise. When is he going to do it? Last time. End time. The end. Do we know when that is? No, but... Again, that's what Fred was asking. You go back to 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ rise first. So if you die tomorrow, you're, that's what it's talking about. The dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive will be caught up to be, that's what caught up is where we get the word rapture. So, I mean, that, that tremendous promise is, is the content of our hope. It's future. You can't see it. But you believe it. And that's why he uses the word in the middle of verse 5, faith, through faith. Faith, this, is, this isn't an original thought with me, but I love the sentence. Faith actualizes hope. I wish I would have thought that up, but I didn't. Somebody else did. Faith, do you know what actualize means, don't you? Faith actualizes hope. Because, I mean... It's rooted in a historical fact. The most attested event, Kemet, do you know what attested means? The most provable attested event coming out of the ancient world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the greatest amount of evidence, the greatest testimonies of that historic faith, that, that historic event. And we do anything coming out of the ancient world. And so he's just saying, he, Peter's just saying to us, your faith Based on that historic fact, you trust in that. And you trust in that great promise that the person who was resurrected, Jesus Christ, made to you, that he's going to come back for you, actualizes your hope. Jim, I always thought that prophesy, prophecy was you know, forecasting a coming event, and, and then I had it explained. <clears throat> on TV the other day Richard Morris that it was not necessarily uh, prophesying a coming event, it was words of encouragement and uh, and I think that's what I see in here he says what he's doing is he's just really giving encouragement to those people is that a correct definition of the Well, you are, uh, there are two words there I want to make sure you're, you're clear on. You have the word prophecy, which is a noun. Prophecy is that whole block or body of teaching about the future events. Prophesy is a verb, means to declare and proclaim, and that's what Morris was talking about there. And so Peter is not only talking a little bit about prophecy, the future, he's also prophesying, he's declaring, and by means, therefore, encouraging us uh, about the future. So, yeah, prophesy does not necessarily mean to just tell the future. You know what I mean? To tell about the future. 
It is to declare and proclaim that which has already been declared and proclaimed in the Word of God. And isn't it always positive? Uh, That's just a great question, but (laughs) to answer it biblically... um, takes a little bit. Let me answer it this way, Woody. For the believer, prophesying is, you're you're declaring or proclaiming truth, so ultimately that is positive. It should be positive. I mean, to prophesy, to declare, to proclaim that God is going to deal with evil, that God is going to hold people accountable. That's both, oh my goodness, but it's also encouraging. Uh, that God is that kind of God who holds his creatures accountable for what they do. So, I mean, I'm, I'm using that just as an example. So ultimately for the believer, uh, that which is declared or proclaimed according to the word of God is an encouraging positive thing, regardless of its content. Because the author of a uh, of prophesying is ultimately the Lord. Uh, Jim, on our salvation, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we can get on with living the Christian life whether and not be concerned about losing our salvation, would you say? So that our energy can go in to being what he wants us to be rather than worrying about if he's going to suddenly pull it away from us if we do something that, like, make a mistake, which we all do in here? Well, I really, I believe that very strongly, and I would just refer you back, as an illustration of Fred's point, to our little epistle we studied before we started First Peter. Remember Jude, verse 1, kept by the Father. To me, that is one of the most important phrases in the New Testament that focuses on our security, kept by the Father. Uh, Romans chapter 8, the last verses of Romans chapter 8 are another passage that really stresses our security. My own conviction is, Fred, that if you do not have security in terms of your position in Christ, you will never grow. You'll always be going back. I remember when I, I was involved in prison ministry for quite a while, and I remember one guy, you know, in, in this is a general state, but often in prison, every guy that's a prisoner, one, he's innocent in his view. And number two, when he gets out, if he's come to, he wants to be a preacher. There, there, I just, there were so many guys were like that. And they were wonderful. I loved ministering to them. But one guy said to me one time, he said, you know, I've been saved at least 100 times. And I mean, I had to process that. Because, you know, I said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I, I, I came to the Lord, and then I did this and this and this, and then I went back to the pastor and said, I need to get saved again. And he said, I just kept getting saved, saved again and again and again. To me, that's not a New Testament truth. That's not a New Testament declaration. What that man lacked was what... We are talking about here the security of who you are in Christ. Because 1 John chapter 1, verses 7, 8, 9, the blood of Jesus goes on cleansing us from sin. So he says, this is John now, if you confess your sins, you agree with God, and that's what confess means, he is faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So if the blood of Jesus goes on cleansing, it's continuous present, then what I do is I'm just agreeing with God. And see, otherwise you're going, you're constantly going back to square one. Okay, I gotta start over again. It's all up to me. I blew it again, so I'll start over again. It is not up to you. Jesus paid it all. What is up to you now is learning, learning what it means in loving obedience to walk in dependence on Him. The word for that is sanctification. How long does it take us to learn that? It takes us the rest of our lives. We grow, 
We grow in that dependence. But you see, and this is the, it's just all the New Testament. We have all the old habits and all the old patterns of sin that we now have to, in dependence on the Lord, get rid of and replace them. That's what Ephesians 4 is all about. Replace them with those things that are pleasing to the Lord. So we're sort of getting off the subject of 1 Peter, but these bunny trails are coming from 1 Peter, which means it's of the Lord, I think. Tom? Well, I think it's in one of the Gospels. Jesus said like three times he won't lose any of them. Any of us, you know, so mm-hmm. he, he mentioned it three times, mm-hmm. I think, in a row there. Mm-hmm. Those you give me, I will not lose any of those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. I mean, it's just, it, it's, that's why Peter uses the term here in, in this passage, the term inheritance. Inheritance is one of those sacred, final type terms. Regardless of who you are and what you do, you will always be the son of your father. Do you understand what I mean by that? No matter what you do, by a lot, he'll always be his son. So that's why the Lord says, you come to faith in my son Jesus Christ, you're now in the family of God. I'm your heavenly father and you're my child. Amen. That, that metaphor has with it the sense of a sacredness, a certainty, and it cannot be taken away. Just all of those metaphors and analogies that the New Testament helps us wants us to understand that our security, the security of who we are, our identity, is not something we should be worrying about. We should not be anxiety. So when we sin, what do we do? Lord, I'm sorry. I did what I know I shouldn't do. And the Lord says, okay, that's it. Take care of it. I told you this before, but it's a great, it's a great illustration. Jill, uh, Stuart Briscoe, who's now an elderly man, but he was a great pastor up in Wisconsin. His wife, Jill, had written a book, and she talks about the importance of her understanding what we're talking about. She said, one time she was saying to the Lord, do you remember what I did yesterday? No, this is she's sort of making this up, but she, the whole point is the Lord says, "No, I'm sorry, Joe, I don't remember that." No, Lord, don't you remember? I did this and I did this and I said this. But I'm sorry, I don't remember that. And she went on and on, and finally, you know, it was just she, she was reminded again of what the Lord says in the Psalms: He takes our sin and buries them in the deepest part of the of the sea. So you know, if if we have come into a relationship with the Lord and we are beginning that process of walking in obedience with him and dependent upon him, and we agree with him about our sin. That's what confession is, that spiritual breathing. We exhale in confession and inhale the love and forgiveness of the Lord. That process, Corey Tenmum used to say, the Lord buries our sins in the deepest part of the sea and puts a sign over it, no fishing. It, for him... That's why Jesus came. Otherwise, you're saying that the work of Jesus wasn't sufficient. You don't want to say that. So, I mean, okay. How about we get back to the book, okay? Verse 6. Now, notice how Peter does this. In this, you rejoice. Now, this is a demonstrative pronoun. I know you all knew that, but I thought I'd just throw that in. But what's it referring to? This. It's referring to this. In this, you rejoice. All that he has summarized for us in verse 4 and verse 5, in this we rejoice. He says, notice what he says. Though, for a little while. Now, ESV, that's the translation I'm reading from. Little while, I love that. Little while. Little while. What does that imply? It's not going to last. It's short. A little while. Now, maybe 70 years. But from the Lord's perspective, which is always an eternal perspective, 70 years or 20 years or two days, in a little while, if necessary, 
you have been grieved by various trials. Peter recognizes something. Trials bring grief. And that's okay. Trials bring grief. God created us as emotional beings. And grief is a reality in this broken, fallen world. And Christians are not immune to grief. Grief is a process in how you deal with the difficult things of life. Why does why does he use necessary? Uh, I'm not sure I understand your question. Why does he? Why does he say necessary? If necessary. Because of verse seven. This test, this trial, has a purpose to it. Our, well, that's it. That's the word he uses. So that. Now, I'm, I'm hoping all of your translations have that. So that. That's introducing a result clause. The intended result of a trial tested genuineness of your faith. Let's just talk about that for a minute. The word test there, that's not the same word as trial in verse 6. They're two separate words. But a trial can be a test. doesn't have to be, but it can be a test. The word for test there is dokimion. I know you all are glad I told you that. But Dakimion, what that that was used in the metallurgical industry of the first century. And what that meant is you you go out, you know, and you're, let's say, you get some silver ore or or gold ore. Okay, what does that mean? Well, you gotta you gotta get all the junk in that rock removed so you can get what you're really after, the gold or the silver. So what do you do? You put it in an intensely hot cauldron. And with, in the ancient world, with billows, you get that thing as hot as you can possibly make it. And what happened? And we have a lot of records of this in ancient Egypt, in ancient Rome, ancient Greece. So you get that, that cauldron heated hot enough, what starts to happen is all the junk starts to come to the top. And we, we, they, in, in Egypt, they have this. You have people just taking, scooping off all the junk to get what? The genuineness of your faith. How does faith grow? Faith, dependence, yieldedness, how does it grow? When you're sitting in your comfortable, lazy boy with your feet propped up watching a sports event, nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that's wrong. But it's, you know, Daryl gets the diagnosis. He just mentioned that, so I hope he doesn't mind me using that. Daryl gets the diagnosis of cancer. In a very real sense, that's a test of Daryl's faith. Can he trust the Lord who saved him through this trial? Can he allow the Lord to grow and, and, and magnify his faith through this trial? Is that not why James says in James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you encounter various trials? Who wants to, do you want, to, want that to be your life verse? Will you memorize that verse for me? That's your life verse? Count it all joy when you count it. No, I don't want to memorize that. But that's the truth. That's what Peter is saying here for a little while. This hope that we've just developed and talked about is what's going to sustain you. Because you will grieve through various trials. Because listen, this is a testing of the genuineness of your faith. And then he, and most of your translations should have this like a dash or a parenthesis. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. What's more precious than gold? Your faith. 
your trust and your belief that God ultimately has your best interest at heart and ultimately is going to keep you and so on. So, so, I mean, it's just a fantastic encouragement so that your faith may found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what's Peter doing? He's taking you back to the future promise. The revelation of Jesus Christ is referring to his coming back for you. The revelation of Jesus Christ, his coming back to you, for you. So, difficulties and trials, tribulations of life can be a testing of the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, Peter says to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus. When Jesus teaches about end-time stuff in Matthew 24, he follows in Matthew 25 with a series of parables. And every one of those parables has this point. Be faithful and be ready. That's exactly what Peter's saying here. Be faithful and be ready. What sustains you even through the grief that accompanies the trials of life is the realization that this is a testing, a honing, a sharpening, a deepening of my faith to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus, which is what I want to manifest when he returns for me. So Peter is just, this is one of the principles that's all through the scriptures. The future promises of God should motivate the present behavior of his children. Now I'll repeat that profound thought again. I've said it many times, but the future promises of God should sustain, should explain, should motivate present behavior of his children. And what Peter is doing is he's anchoring, why we can have it, he's anchoring in that historical fact. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is what informs your hope that the inheritance he's promised you, and now he adds, even through trials and testing of faith, will be sufficient to keep your hope energized and empowered and ready. It's the joy mixed with the grief of life that sustains us. Can a person who's a believer in Christ have tears in the midst of joy? Hurt in the midst of joy? Yeah. Okay. That's why I said a moment ago, I mean, every one of these verses just kind of got to take it all apart and put it all back together. This is great teaching. And, and Peter, it's just amazing in this little epistle, he just jams so much into each verse. So because we have all the time in the world, we're going to take all the time to take it apart. So are you with me? Really, I should say, are you really with Peter? Do you understand what he's saying to us here? It's great truth. Great truth. I was waiting for a question, but I didn't get any, so I just took a sip of coffee. All right. Verse 8. <clears throat> I want you to notice in verse 8, you have two though statements. Do we, I hope each one of your translations have that. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. Now, those though, two though statements, or really though clauses to be technical, are rooted in the intended results of faith. Though you have not seen him, you and I have not seen the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. 
But do you love him? Through the eyes of faith, he's real. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's resurrected, glorified body. And I love him for everything he's done for me. Though you haven't seen him, through the eyes of faith, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you believe in him. Not, not, not only the belief of salvation, which leads to justification, all that stuff, but this ongoing trust, this ongoing dependent trust and faith in him. Though you, you haven't seen him, you believe him, you trust him. And rejoice with joy. That's redundant. Rejoice with joy. It's like you have joy, joy, <laughs> but you rejoice with joy. So let's make sure you're with me on this. So verse 8, as this faith that's been tested and the junk is being removed as we walk in faith independence, yields three things. Deeper love for Jesus, deeper trust in Jesus, and greater joy. Now, let me repeat that. The faith that he's talking about in verse 7, faith that is being tested, it's more precious than gold to perish. As you walk in dependence on the Lord, yields three things. A greater love for him, a greater trust in him, and a greater joy. He writes, joy that is inexpressible, inexpressible, and filled with glory. What does that mean, it's inexpressible? Let's, I hate to use it all the paper first national so long. Let's put it here like this. When you see the biblical term joy, what does that mean? Is genuine, and the joy that he's talking about, is joy, let me put it another way, is happiness a synonym for joy? Peace, that's, uh, that's getting in the circle. Joe, you're... I was going to say happiness, I remember you talking, is, the, is related to a happiness with our situation, a current situation where joy is, and I'm struggling to remember what you said in the past. I'm just amazed you remembered even that, because you're the only one in the group that's remembered that. That's really good. Yes, uh, happiness is related to and responding to our circumstances. Joy is related to and responding to our relationship with God. What are our circumstances like? Well, let's you know, draw it. Our circumstances are like this, right? I mean, you know, that's, that's life. That's just the way life is. For the believer, this is life. The difference is the joy that you and I can have is rooted in our relationship and understanding and dependence on the Lord. That's what gives us. That's why he says it's inexpressible. You know, you sit down and try to write a sentence about genuine biblical joy. That's hard. It's it's hard to really be able to, but it's an it's an entire. I don't know how else to describe it, so I'll describe it this way. It's an entire attitude about life. But as Peter is making it very clear here, it's source in our faith, not our circumstances. It's sourced in our faith, not our emotions. It's sourced in our faith, not another person. And that's why Peter says it's really inexpressible. But it's real. And he says, and it's filled with glory. (laughs) 
and that's interesting because it, another way you could translate that, it's reflecting the glory of the Lord that's being manifested in you. You see, joy, genuine biblical joy, is really a manifestation of the glory of God. It really is. <clears throat> and then he adds, the outcome of your faith, summarize, summary now, summarize, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Now, that, that's, there's that same word again, soterion, salvation of your souls. The final out and final outcome, final purpose of God's plan. The resurrection and glorification of your body in eternal life with him. So he's taken us now full circle. We've gone all around the circle, and we're back to that reality. The salvation, which is the key to our inheritance, which is the content of our hope, which is rooted in the resurrection. Okay? And this is one of those passages, starting in verse 5 and going through verse 9, and you just have to kind of reread. And that's what I've tried to do here with this little messy thing up here. To get get the handle on it. It's just one of the great encouraging passages of the scriptures. It really is. You know, now, where do we turn? Do we turn to man? Do we turn to cars? Do we turn to our bank account? Um, I mean, these are great men around here, and we do love one another. We love this word. We love Christ. But ultimately, do we turn? to one another, maybe for encouragement, yes. Sure, sure. But for eternal redemption, it's nothing on earth that God has created that can redeem us except Jesus Christ. And so these are kind of bunny trails we sometimes go down, maybe for a moment we get a new car, you know, and man, we're just mm -hmm. not really there. And there's nothing wrong with it. No, no not at all. No, 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 no. But it's not it, our redemption. It's not our joy <clears throat> inside of our heart that abides and lasts. Does it progress? And we trade it off and we get something else. So, a new car will bring happiness. A new car will not bring joy. It's not that that in and of itself is evil. But keeping the perspective that that beautiful car I just purchased or leased, or whatever you make your arrangements, it's going to rust, going to deteriorate, the computer system is going to fail, and I'm going to have to take it to the garage. I mean, all of those things. You know, I just, I my garage roof I had I replaced. Why? Because of the hail. The, my house was okay, but my garage roof for some reason. You know, it's just it's a little tiny thing. Uh, well, anyway, it was just reminding me again, you know, all of the things of this world deteriorate, rust, get old, just like I am, but not the Lord. He never deteriorates, never gets old, he never fails, he's never tired. That's why the scriptures keep saying, don't be a circumstance-controlled person, be a spirit-controlled person. Don't run your life based on the fluctuality, the fluctuation of circumstances. Run your life in your faith and trust on the one who never changes. Micah, Malachi 3, I am the Lord, I change not. I don't change. It's just, that's all that Peter's just doing all this stuff in this majestic several verses to anchor our hope, not in circumstances, but in the Lord whose promises never fails. People will fail you. Circumstances will fail you. The Lord won't. <clears throat> All right? We have 10 minutes. Let's 
Can we start the next section, or do you want to just meditate for the next 10 minutes on this great truth? Look at what he does in the next, I love this section. This is great. Of course, the whole book's a wonderful book. Concerning this salvation, ESV translates that opening phrase in that way. I hope it's pretty similar to yours. Concerning this salvation, what salvation? What he's just been discussing in the last paragraph. Concerning this, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Do you understand what he's saying? Peter is saying the prophets prophesied about all this. What prophets? Who's he talking about here? That was not a rhetorical question. Who's he talking about here? What prophets? Of the Old Testament. Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and the 12 minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, etc., etc. All of those prophets, to one degree or another, talked about this stuff. And they searched and inquired, inquiring what person or, or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, again, I, that's a little bit wordy. It's a little bit cumbersome. But what is he saying? They searched. They inquired. The sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Messiah. Christ, remember, means Messiah. And subsequent glories. His resurrection. Okay, listen. What Peter is saying is, all that I've been talking about is rooted in the whole counsel of God. The prophets talked about it. And they searched and they inquired. Is it going to happen? When's it going to happen? How soon is it going to happen? But it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Peter or uh, Daniel writes, I'm writing this stuff down. I don't understand what I'm writing. I'm recording this stuff, but I don't understand what I'm saying. I don't understand what I'm writing. And the angel says to him, don't sweat it, Daniel. It's okay. You're just being faithful. That's all he's saying. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels long things in which angels long to look. No. By the glazed look in some of your faces, you're not getting it. So I'm gonna tear off this sheet. I hope Joel Jensen's okay with me doing this. What's he saying? <clears throat> He uses that general term prophet. And as Joe correctly said, this is all the Old Testament prophets. The major prophets, there are four of those. And the minor prophets, there are 12 of those. The prophets of the Old Testament talked about the Christ. Remember, Christ means Messiah. It's a Greek word for Messiah. And all of the details about him and what he was going to accomplish. We, because of the Holy Spirit who inspired these guys, who now indwells these guys, we are revealing all this stuff to you. That's what he said. This is a mess. Do you understand that? It's, it's, it, listen, this is what's so neat. It ties the Old and the New Testament together. It ties them together in a kind of a cumbersome way of stating it. I'm trying to make it uncumbersome. That's probably not a word. But he says the Old Testament prophets, major and minor, they talked about the Christ. 
They talked about his suffering. Isaiah 53, just one example, talks in explicit detail about the crucifixion of the coming Messiah. And all the details associated. The Spirit of Christ. That it is the Spirit that inspired these guys to write. The Spirit of Christ inspired them. But you see you, meaning you guys who are reading my letter. We have been indwelt by the same Holy Spirit who inspired them. And we, the apostles, are now revealing all this truth to you. We're putting the Old and the New Testament revelations together. And we're explaining. Listen, Peter is really making quite an astonishing statement here. You people who are now receiving this revelation are receiving the whole counsel of God. Everything is coming together now. Old and New Testament are coming together. And did you notice twice he uses it? Spirit of Christ who inspired the Old Testament prophets and the Holy Spirit who is enabling us to reveal to you. Did I lose you, or are you with me? Do you understand what he's doing here? It's a tremendous affirmation concerning their salvation. It was prophesied in the old, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ was in them. And now the Holy Spirit from heaven, we are preaching the goodness to you, revealing the goodness to you, that the Holy Spirit from heaven who indwells us, is an analyst to do. And this is so profound and so deep, the angels long to look into this stuff. Why add that? In addition to trying to perplex us and cause us to be tripped up, why is he saying that? You know, it's, this, is not a, this is not the only time the Bible talks about this. The angels cannot really understand the program of redemption. Why? They're not lost. They don't need salvation. They're around the throne of God, worshiping and glorifying him all the time. They can't figure out why stupid human beings are doing the same thing. Every Christmas... Uh, my wife reads one of Max Licato's little treasures called Co Cosmic Christmas. And a couple of years ago, I joined in the tradition, so I read it too. I don't know if you know who Max Licato is. He's a very creative writer, just a really neat guy in, in how he writes stuff. But he writes from the perspective of the Son of God coming in the incarnation, Christmas. And the angels can't figure it out. Why is he, the prince is going... The sun's going, why is he going? You know, it's just, it's really a neat perspective, just because the angels just can't quite get it. Because they can't figure out why we're in rebellion against the Father. They can't figure out why we're because angels are the messengers of God. And so they're just they long to they long to understand it. Ephesians says that at the end, when it's all done, when everything is finished. I mean, everything about the end time stuff. It says the Father's going to hold up the redeemed to the angels. This is what it's all about. The trophies of the grace of God. Lost humanity that are now saved by the grace of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Does that mean then the angels will see it and understand it? I, I don't know. But the God is going to hold us up before the angels and say, this is what it's been all about. So Peter is trying to connect, and the connecting point is the Spirit. Spirit of Christ was in them, Old Testament prophets. Holy Spirit from heaven is enabling us to reveal all of this to you. So it's just, it's really a neat connecting of the old and the new, and the connecting link is the Spirit. The Spirit who inspires Old Testament Spirit who indwells New Testament. Again, I hope that makes sense to you because this is this is really really deep theological truth. But once you get it, it's not hard to understand what he's saying. So, do you have it? Does it make sense to you? That'll be the other thought paper for next week.
verse 13. We just Let's crack into this because we only have a couple minutes. Therefore, therefore, preparing, preparing your minds for action. Literally, that's how the ESV is translated. Literally, girding up the loins of your mind, which has absolutely no meaning to you at all. Because girding up the loins is how, in the ancient world, you dressed yourself. The very first thing is you gird up your loins. You know, around all the private parts of the body, what you and I now do is we put on underwear in the morning. Gird up your loins. Who talks like that? So, preparing your minds for action. Why issue that command? Why issue that command? Pardon me? I'm sorry, still... Okay, they're under siege, they're being persecuted. But why focus on the mind? Prepare your mind for action. Your mind matters. J.R.W. Stott wrote a little book one time entitled Your Mind Matters. One of my favorite books. You see, our thought life, our thought life is the beginning of every action we take. How does sin start? Starts as a thought, becomes a desire, yields into an action. How does holiness, holiness starts with a thought dwelling and meditating on the truths of God, which yields a desire, love for the Lord, devotion to the Lord, which results in an action, obedience to the Lord. See, your mind does matter. Your thought life does matter. That's one of the great concerns that a lot of people have right now about where the technology of our culture is leading. People are now talking about Google knowledge. Google thinking. Almost the concept the internet never lies. Never distorts. (laughs) Peter is saying, therefore, preparing your mind for action. How do you prepare your mind? Everything that he has just been talking about. Everything he's just been laying down as the foundation is how you prepare your mind for action. It really matters. Your worldview, how you think about things, really matters. And that's why, if I can, in the minute that I have remaining, if I can go back to that word we often use of sanctification. Sanctification, that process of the Lord conforming us into the image of his Son. Sanctification, a lot of the process of sanctification is repackaging our thought life. It really is. And and, and would you stay and focusing more on the Word? Yes, yes. At least making that a priority. It's not to don't read newspapers and all that stuff, but it's it's just the priority is I, I, I used to tell my students, the very first question you should always ask is, has God spoken to this? Has God spoken to this issue? Can I go and find out God's mind on this? Paul writes in First Corinthians chapter two, verse sixteen, after this long discourse of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he says who, who has given counsel to the Lord? That's a rhetorical question from Isaiah. Who? No one. The Lord didn't ask me, Jim, how would you like me to create this day? If I, He'd asked me, I said, Lord, this is what I'd like. About 20 degrees, a gentle north wind, about 15 miles an hour. That's the kind of day I love. But as you're very thankful that the Lord doesn't. I mean, the Lord would never ask me what kind of day or anything else. He doesn't ask me what to do. But then he adds, this is an incredible verse, but he adds, but we have the mind of Christ. What does he mean by that? If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, because of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, 
we begin to get God's perspective on things. That's the mind of Christ. We're not exhaustive, omniscient, where we know everything. That's not what he means. The mind of Christ means we begin we begin to see and understand things the way God does. As he's unpacking all of the junk of our mind and repacking it with his word. How long does that take? It takes the rest of our lives. So Peter says, Therefore, based on everything I have been talking to you about, prepare your minds for action. It starts with your mind, your thought life, your perspective on things, your worldview. I'm going to end with that because that is a great place to end. It really is. So your thought paper for next week is summarize the key points of your worldview from verse 5 to verse 12. Two pages, single-spaced is okay. I'm just kidding. No, don't take that seriously. Please don't do it. And if you do do it, don't hand it in. (laughs) Oh, I'm just kidding. Well, let me pray. It's a great passage. I hope this was a blessing to you today. It is a great passage. And I hope the Lord used our, our time together to reinforce it. Lord, I am so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us, what you inspired, Holy Spirit, the Old Testament prophets, to write even though they didn't understand it, even though they didn't get it all. They understood they were serving the future generations. And Holy Spirit, you now who indwell us, indwelt the apostles, who had that first opportunity to reveal all these truths, something that even the angels can't figure out. Lord, I thank you for these men that they're willing to take an hour out of the week for in-depth study of the Word of God. I trust this has been a blessing today. The richness of those first uh, verses, 5 through 9, are so inexplicably deep but so profoundly important. I pray it's clear to each man and that you, Spirit, are continuing your work in each one of their lives. Help them in their work and their responsibilities and their relationships to represent you well. So we ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.